months ago, we here at Unorthodox were asked to be part of an important conference at the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. The idea was to celebrate a new book called Jewish Priorities by inviting a bunch of really smart Jews to tell us what we should focus on moving forward. What should our Jewish priorities be? But then October 7th happened, and it seemed like our priorities, really our entire world, completely changed, which only made the conference more urgent. So a while back, we gathered at the beautiful Weizmann Museum in Philadelphia, and we did what Jews do best, especially when times are tough. We talked. We talked about Israel and about Gaza, about Jewish storytelling and Jewish philanthropy, about the environment and religion and everything else that matters right now. The conversations weren't always easy. Sometimes, hey, we're Jews, we disagreed. But the conversations were always provocative and interesting, and we're happy to share them here with you. If you like what you hear, you should check out Jewish Priorities, edited by David Hazoni. And you should also visit the Weizmann Museum in Philly and their truly amazing collection. But now, on to the conversations. I asked for a Jews, and mostly I'm talking about American Jewry, have slowly let go of Jewishness in order to cling to liberal universal values. They use the term tikkun olam as the kind of a last very, very thin thread that connects what they actually want to do is to be secular liberal and between some nominal Jewish tradition. And I think that these people are, are, are having the worst crisis right now because the, the, they finally realize that no, they actually are totally betrayed by all the, all the people they thought were their allies. Uh, Jewish lives do not matter. We gotta get back to smashing idols. Idolatry is not just bowing down to these statues or that statue. Idolatry is really, and the Bible makes it clear, a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings, people, or ideologies, and turning those into gods, and doing whatever those gods tell us to do, however immoral. This is Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, and these are some of the voices you'll hear on this panel called Mount Sinai, Stories, Rituals, and the Jewish Spirit Theater. It features panelists Rabbi Melanie Lavav, Ruby Namdar, Laura Shaw Frank, and Scott A. Shea, and was moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick. This panel focused on the importance of storytelling and narrative in understanding our Jewish history and future. This panel is Mount Sinai, Stories, Rituals, and the Jewish Spirit Theater. So we're gonna be talking a lot about how we understand ourselves, the stories we tell, and the way in which we ensure that our, our history, our legacy, our, our inheritance is passed down through generations. I would love to start, since we are in this informal environment, if, if all of you could just introduce yourselves, tell us what you are, what you do. If you wanna share what your essay was about for the book Jewish Priorities, you're welcome to do that. Tell us how the past few weeks have been. I mean, just sort of let, introduce yourself broadly to the to the audience. Ruby, you want to start? A short introduction. Yes. Hi, my name is Ruby Namdar. Hi, nice to see you all. Ruby Namdar, uh, Israeli-American novelist. I'm still trying to get used to this definition. A Hebrew author living in New York. 
And um, I wrote about um, the Agadah uh, in the Talmud and, and the possibility of being an Agadic Jew. And I would love to speak about it a lot soon. Hi, I'm Laura Shaw-Frank. I am the director of the Contemporary Jewish Life Department at American Jewish Committee, AJC, where I do a lot of uh, providing of expert sort of educational material for the agency and uh, oversee our interactions with the university administrators. Um, and my essay was about Jewish history education and why it is the secret bullet that we all need right now. And I have to tell you, when I wrote it, I thought it was a secret bullet, and now I really think it's the secret bullet. So hopefully we'll get to talk about that. Hi, I'm Scott Shea, and I'm a businessman and an entrepreneur, and my passion is writing. I've written three books, Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jury, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, and most recently, Conspiracy You. And I am what my rabbi calls me a lot, the idolatry guy. And you're gonna probably hear me talk about that too because the topic that I wrote about for Jewish priorities was that we need to get back to smashing idols. And I think that's more imperative now than ever before. Hi, I'm Rabbi Melanie Lavav. I am the executive director of a startup Jewish organization called Shomer Collective. We help more people to talk about death and dying. And my chapter was why talking about death and dying inspired by Jewish wisdom will actually help us to live a better life. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, as you can see, these are some incredibly qualified and, and really just interesting panelists. Um, Ruby, I want to start with you. You do, you know, you talk about this idea of an agotic Jew. Tell us what that means for most of us who have literally never heard that before. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to start first of all with with um, with looking at at us in this room and seeing how scarce we are here. Let's just say it, okay? We're not, and I think that's part of the problem. I think that is the fact that the fact that an idea like we're on Sinai and there's Jewish meaning and storytelling is much less exciting, attractive, or seems important to most people who attend this. I'm not, I'm not reproaching them. It's, it's, it's what it is. Something about Jewish culture gets lost in cultural translation. And my, and, and, and my particular interest in this is something that I discussed a lot with my dear friend David Gezelman, who's like the mass, the great artist of halakha and the, the aesthetic and the, the, the poetics of halakha, is that often we associate our cultural heritage, that let's say the Talmud or, with halakha, with the law. And the law is exactly as it sounds, it's the law, and it's very analytical, and it's very interesting for people with a very particular kind of mind, a very elitist, a, a brilliant a, a mind that is very analytic, and then there's some biblical stories that in America people don't really know. In Hebrew, we got them through the vein when I was little. Today, they don't do that anymore, which is another conversation for a different panel. And then we have the masses, the Jewish masses that are left without narrative and without meaning. 
And then they seek it elsewhere. Like the song goes, I was looking for love in all the wrong places. But the truth is that we have, we have an amazing treasure trove. That's called the Agadah. The Agadah is the narrative part of the Talmud. It's the fantasy part. It's the imagery. It's where the, the most amazing and irreverent and, and chutzpahdik and wonderful and fantastic stuff, the good stuff, is in the pockets of Agadah that are spread through the Talmud and through the Midrashic literature. And for many generations, they were considered secondary. They were, while the, you know, this was, I'm, I'm, I don't love this discourse, but like this was a very patriarchal project, like the study of, and Agadah was for women, children, and commoners, you know, the peasants. Tell them a nice story to keep them awake, while us, the serious men, are gonna sit and like talk about completely Brilli absurdly brilliant or brilliantly absurd, hypothetic, halachic debate. And this worked for a certain amount of time and then it completely stopped working. And today I would say 90% of the Jewish people, not only, many of them don't even know the word halacha, they don't think that they're owe anything to halakha, to the law, the rabbinic law, and it has nothing to do with their life. 90%, I would say. I don't know if you count, I don't know how they count heads nowadays. Basically, just the orthodoxy. The Jewish orthodoxy and a few, again, very beautiful minds that I, I basically know them all, who are interested in halakha. <laughs> we're like five of us, but we're great five people. But that's it. On the other hand, the Agadic treasure trove remains closed. And most Jews, at most times, did not live halachically. This is just a myth. Jews did not run to the rabbi to make a shayla about every single thing. People had their minhagim, and there were a million ways of being Jewish including etzel Ashkenazim, but most certainly amongst other parts of the world. And it wasn't halakha. Actually, to think that the halachic state of mind is Judaism is like somebody's gonna go to the Harvard Law School, break into the library, open a bunch of like legalistic books and say, this is the essence of our society. This is how people lived, it's just not. What did keep Jews in the, the Jewish identity game? The deep narratives, the stories, the imagery, the, the, the amazing metaphors, the meaning that flowed. And this meaning flowed through Agadah. And in my opinion, not only Agadah was not secondary to Halakha, it could be that Halakha was just an excuse to do the real thing, which is Agad, the Agadic exploration. And I would like, first of all, to say, I'm not a halachic Jew, I'm traditional, I'm, not, I'm not, not religious, I'm not very religious, but definitely not halachic. But I definitely feel like I'm an Agadic Jew, that the, 
my connection to the Agada is informs my identity and makes me want to belong and want to do the way that halakha could never do. And I will let others more <laughs> more wise than I speak now. No, Thank that's you. that's fascinating. And and Laura, this actually brings us to you really nicely because what it sounds like, Ruby, is that you actually need that underpinning of knowledge to then tell these foundational, beautiful, amazing stories. So as someone in your role in the communal Jewish world trying to help educate the next generations, how do we create more agotic Jews? First of all, I, I just, I love the concept of uh, agotic Jews. I, I love that so much. Um, I think that one of the things we're seeing in this moment right now that we're in is that there are so many Jews who are, and this was mentioned in the, in the earlier panel, who are coming out of the woodwork, dying for Jewish continuity, feeling something very profound about their Judaism and unable to express it. And the resource that I've been asked the most for in the past two weeks, and we've been churning out resources as fast as we can in my department as they come to us, is a resource that talks about what is the Jewish people's connection to Israel because these people are feeling it and they cannot put words to it. They can't. They don't know it. So I'm, I, before I started working in the Jewish communal world at AGC, I was a Jewish educator for 17 years. I taught in two different Jewish day schools. Um, and in one of those Jewish day schools, they had a Jewish history department. Uh, and the kids were required to take Jewish history for four years all four years of high school. It was a separate and apart from their regular history class. And this is what I wrote about in my essay. I feel very strongly, and it actually, it, it ties in beautifully with Agatic Jews, it really does. I feel very strongly that one of the ways, maybe the way, that we can get to the heart of young Jews and help them understand their Jewish identity is through history. And the reason I say that is because they understand the study of history. They understand the study of history as an identity uh, forming, forming um, type of a class. And through Jewish history, they can unpack Jewish identity, such as understanding what you said, that not all Jews were running to their rabbis and asking Shiloh is 100% true. Um, and that Jews were asking all the questions that they have, every question that our young people have and that our old people have and that everyone in between has about Judaism has been asked in some form before. Um, every, every pushback, every question. And maybe it's not asked exactly the sa same way as we would ask it today, but for our young people to understand and for all Jews to understand that their difficulty does not put them outside of the Jewish people it's just another aspect of the Jewish people. I think that the Jewish communal world has a very significant role to play here in, I don't know if it's creating spaces just for adults to continue their study. I believe very firmly that Jewish adults need to model for Jewish young people being lifelong learners about Judaism. We can't, we, you can't, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent of four emerging adult children ranging, ranging in age from 25 to 18. I know very well that you cannot tell your children what to do anymore. It's, that's over. But you can model for them what's important to you. Um, so on the one hand, I think that, that Jewish communal spaces have an obligation to, 
to foster those learning environments. And I don't care if it's if your Jewish communal organization is an ecological one, is uh, Jewish advocacy, is Israel advocacy, is whatever it is, there's a way to inject Jewish content, Jewish tradition, agadita, um, Jewish history into the way you operate. And then when we think about our young people, thinking about how to reinvigorate their educational spaces through the use of Jewish history, through the use of something that is a, a discipline that shines on a light on Jewish resilience, shines a light on Jewish creativity, on the plethora of opinions within the Jewish community, on the, on the consistent internal critique that Jews have always engaged in. I, I think it's um, a really powerful way to, to give our kids the answer to why and our young and everyone it's not just kids adults the answer as to why they're feeling the way they're feeling in this moment hi i'm dara horn if you know me and my work, you know that I love teaching people the amazing stories of living Jewish culture and heritage, and not just all the bad stuff that happens to us. I've been working with the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History to develop an in-school curriculum to do just that. We're piloting it now in public schools. If you want to help bring an antidote to anti-Semitism into your kids' schools, contact the Weizmann's educators at theweizmann.org slash Dara. Well, you guys are sitting in the perfect order because I think this actually brings me to my my next question for you, Scott. You know, you write about the the risk of idolatry, right? Of falling prey to to idols in society, and that does seem like another spot where girding ourselves with with the understanding of things that have befallen our people in the past can help us from falling victim to that again, right? For, from seeking out um, from from sort of falling under the spell of our modern day idols. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, not only am I sitting in the right spot, but this week's Parsha is about Abraham, our forefather, who uh, becomes the first person to say to the, to the then world that idolatry is a big problem. And the prequel story, the Midrashic prequel story, is that Abraham smashes the idols in his father's uh, idol store, and then is forced to flee for 13 years. It's not so easy to smash idols because idolatry isn't just some sort of bowing down to statues. That's not what it's all about. The whole Bible was written, the whole story of the Jews was written so that we could smash idols. What does that mean? Idolatry, and I could spend a lot of time talking about this, so I'm going to give you a very quick, a very quick definition. Idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings or ideologies. So the God King Pharaoh could say in the Passover, what we what we read about in the Passover story, that 
all the Jewish babies should be thrown into the Nile. And that's the law. That's what's correct. And that playbook using theater, medias of whatever exists, power, pageantry, and of course secret enforcement uh, police or armies has been true throughout the decades. The 20th century was a parade of God King Pharaohs. How did Stalin, what you could say, Stalin, Hitler, the, the, the Kim family, the Assad family, I mean, you could go on and on. How did Stalin st kill all the kulaks, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, and um, send tens of millions of people to the gulag? And nobody really complained effectively. He was able to get away with it. He had his, his name uh, uh, um, shown into the sky into the sky by the Soviet space agency. He was a god king pharaoh. How did Mao cause the death of seventy million of his comrades, one way or another? And I don't want to take the time to to go through that, but seventy million is a pretty good number and probably conservative. And said it would be worth it if three hundred million of his fellow Chinese comrades had been killed for the good of the Chinese Communist Party, and he got away with it because of the same tropes of power, pageantry, theater, backed up by armies. And here's a thing about idolatry and why I'm so worried about it and why it's not, unfortunately, just a 20th century phenomenon. It's a phenomenon today, which is it forces people to be, to lie to themselves and to lie to others and to engage in a morality that, that is totally immoral. The, I mean, think about the, 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 the again, the story of the, the, our creation story as a Jewish people. Um, Shifra and Pua, they're told, kill all the Jewish boys, uh, baby boys when they're born. Well, they can't actually say to Pharaoh, that's immoral, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. that how can you kill life? So they have to come up with a lie to try to do the moral thing. Even Moses, he spends his time, he grows up as a rock, akin to a rock star, a prince in Egypt. And yet, when he sees a Egyptian beating a Jew to death, beating an Israelite to death, he looks both ways. He tries to cover it up. He doesn't want to be covered because it's not enough to say to Pharaoh, oh, this Egyptian overlord was, was murdering a Jew or murdering an Israelite. Because that's not that that, that that's the, if the if Pharaoh says it's okay, it's okay, and we have this today, and we have to get back. What I'm worried about is that we we as a Jewish people have to get back to calling out idolatry everywhere. It's a plague for the world. I don't need to go to to say very much about the, the China and the Xi, and if you look at the 70th celebration ceremony on YouTube of the Chinese Communist Party. It looks a lot like what Pharaoh would have, would have done, and it ticks all the same check boxes. Putin, everyone who is engaged in idolatry today is unfortunately creating the same reasons why the Jewish people needed to be brought into existence in the beginning, which is to call out these idols and to smash them. And I think that's our central story. And if we do that, truly, we can be a light unto the nations. So, Rabbi Lavav, um, part of telling stories, 
sometimes means talking about things that are unpleasant or unpalatable or just scary. So much of your work has been prompting us, those the, the people you work with, to talk about death and plan for it. And and I just want to know from you, you know, how does telling stories about death help us live our lives better? Sure, I think it normalizes it. When we normalize having a conversation at every age and stage of life about the reality that we're all mortal, then it helps to reduce the fear. When we don't talk about it and mom gets a diagnosis and there are three siblings and nobody uh, knew exactly what she would have wanted and she can't make the decision for herself, we wind up in a crisis. That's how our work emerged because we see too many families in Jewish communities winding up in crisis because we don't talk about and plan for end of life. And we know there's a wealth of Jewish wisdom, stories, history, that will help us to live lives of greater meaning and connection if we bring that back into the conversation, into the Jewish communal square. Things like the rabbis of the Talmud wondered if it was going to hurt when they died. And so they imagine their teachers coming back to them in dreams. And one of the examples they give us is that it felt like removing a hair from a bowl of milk. Now, what does that mean? You can decide for yourself what you want that to mean. But I'm guessing it probably doesn't hurt, right, to remove a hair from a, a bowl of milk. And the story continues that even though it was just like that, meaning it probably doesn't hurt, I wouldn't want to go back to living after I've experienced that because the fear of death is too great. And that's really a story that we're not talking about. How much we're afraid, how we have generations behind us telling us this is what it might be like and normalizing the conversation. When we normalize the conversation at every age and stage, then we're less likely to wind up in a place where we didn't talk about it. You know, I think about kids on a playground, um, and if they're two years old and they're in your early childhood program um, and they're squishing bugs, they don't realize at two years old that the bugs aren't going home for dinner that night. But when they're four, the psychologists tell us that kids have an understanding of permanency. They get that things that happen um, can't be undone. And so still in your Jewish early childhood program, you know, the kid who's squishing the bug at four years old may realize that the bug's not going to go home for dinner that night. So what does it look like in that setting where we have those conversations with kids, where we equip parents with the stories they need to be able to support their kids so that when, you know, little Johnny comes in and says, Bubby died this weekend, and then the teachers are attending to that, they're making cards for the family, they're making food to deliver, that it's not a shock to the system, to the educational system, to the community, to the family, to the kids, but we've already discussed the fact that we're mortal with the parents, and this is how we do it in an age-appropriate way with young ones. You know, you use the phrase, a shock to the system. I think everything that each one of you said has been torqued 100% in the past two weeks, right? This idea of, do we know our stories? Do we know our history? What do we believe? And how do we talk about really horrific things, it just sort of pierces a bubble that I think a lot of us were living in. And so I'm curious um, from any of you that that want to, you know, up the urgency of what you've said, of what you contributed based on what we've seen in the past few weeks. So um, there was an article, I, I use this article all the time. There was an article that um, was written and it was an op-ed in the New York Times. And of course now I'm not gonna be able to think about who the author was. Um, I can't think of his name, I'll think of it in a second, who wrote about a study, a psychological study of kids and what fostered resilience in kids. And what was it? 
It was knowing their family narrative. That's what it was. It was knowing their family narrative. And it wasn't knowing their family narrative like, your family is great and everything they did was great. It was not your family narrative was a disaster. It was what they called an oscillating, oscillating family narrative. What does that mean? Yes, you know, your grandmother came to this country and she was a seamstress in a sweatshop. And then she worked her way up and she managed to get a junior college degree. Um, and then their business went bankrupt. And then ups and downs and ups and downs. And they found that children that knew, saw themselves as part of something bigger than themselves and saw themselves as part of a unit that had gone through trouble and had come out of it um, and would, my, would, would have trouble again in the future. Those were the qualities that gave kids resilience. And what is the Jewish people, if not our big family, our extended family, our family that if we can tell that story of resilience, of an oscillating family narrative, that is to me, I feel like something that would be and is so important in this particular moment, a narrative that you are part of the Jewish people and that's why you're in pain right now. You are part of a big narrative, you are part of a big family, and our family has been through very hard times before, and we're going to go through very hard times again, and we are the ultimate resilient people, and we are going to find our way out of this. Um, so that's what I would say. I just want to put in a plug for Ruby's book, because what you're talking about in terms of narrative, Ruined House. Since Ruby probably won't plug his own book, I want to do it I for I know, him. that was on my list. Okay, so here's, eerie, here's, here's the plug. Of, of, you're going to do the plug? Yeah. Well, just, I mean, it's just such a connected We're going to go order it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, let's, let's, let's go to Ruby then, because, you know, the story of, I mean, I'll let you tell the story of your book. It's, it's a very long book, um, but it's, it's about what happens very long. when, you know, a, a modern read. liberal New Yorker sort of smacks headfirst into scary ancient Jewish history, right? Without, without being prepared for it and without being, uh, it basically tells the story of a, of a professor living in New York and it's kind of like the a cliche of like the New York success, success story. And, and uh, uh, the book follows a year in his life where he's be beginning to be seized by visions of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. But he has no idea why, what he sees, why he sees it, and what does it mean? Because it's the, re it's the return of a repressed, but the repressed is not an individual repressed. There's a repressed collective memory. So this is, I think that this, this really brings everything we spoke about here uh, uh, together, this idea that we, we all believe that there is a certain collective mind that we are the carriers of, but for some reason, we, at, at the last few generations, failed, I'm going to use this word, failed at passing on to, to, to the new generations in the way that, that could really give them the resilience that you were just talking about. And I, can I just say one thing? I, th there's a, there are many elephants in many rooms right now. There's a big elephant in this room, too. A few of them, but the fact that... Well, now you have to say what they are. I know, well... <laughs> you brought they, they, them up. I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one by one, we'll take care yeah. of them, you know. Uh, the, the elephant that I'm referring to, it's like the 75% or 80% elephant, is the fact that everybody who's in this conference, we, we are within the Jewish conversation. We are... 
we'll be fine. I mean, we may not be fine, but we are within the conversation. We have this network of stories, meaning, terminology, memory, sense of sense of kinship. So we can argue, we could fight, we could do the it's complex relationship, but it's a relationship. But so much of our youth in America today is not part of it. They did not receive it. And we could talk for hours about how and why. And I think what we need to, I would say, drop everything and think of how do we bring, we will never be able to bring all the son, all the herds back into, it's not going to happen. Who are we fooling? But we, if, if some of them could be brought back into this feeling, into this connection with this big pool of ideas, symbols, thoughts, emotions, I think this should be the, the, the one and only thing we do, I think, now, is we, we, we owe it to them. And I know that our friend from Chabad is here, and I know that, Lemashal, you guys do it really well. I know that my daughter in, in Tufts, I'm not, I hope I'm not offending anyone now, but if there's a Hillel Shabbat and a Chabad Shabbat, she knows where she's going, okay? Like, because there is, there is an effort, there is work, but we are not able to do enough of it. And I, my suggestion is to drop everything and think of how do we bring the kids back. They're alone now in universities, in colleges. They are, they, they, they don't know what Tashiv because they don't have the basic vocabulary. Will you define that for those of us in this room Masha who might not know? Like what? It's, it's, a, it's, a rabbinic, it's a rabbinic, it's, it's from Pirkei Avot, it's from the Ethics of the Fathers. Like you should know, you should be ready, so when you meet a heretic, you should be well equipped. They are not well equipped. We didn't equip them. Why would they know? So that's actually an intro to my last book, Conspiracy You, um, which is, is book plugging back and forth. Yeah, so Amazon yeah. links <laughs> up on request. <laughs> I have no book. And to I didn't. Plug. I, yeah, we'll exchange twenty dollar bills. Um, <laughs> the um, but the, there is a serious problem that we have to deal with, and it is that there are an amazing number of conspiracy theories about Jews that are being peddled as fact on campus and academia and other places, and people don't even know how to answer them. Um, I was involved with a DEI seminar so the, the, at a corporation, and essential, and someone in a group much bigger, like 130, 140 people raised their hand and, and at this meeting didn't ask someone else, who was leading the seminar, leading this part of the seminar, said, um, how do you explain? Now this is all corporate 500, Fortune 500 type company. How do you explain that all of the predictions of the protocols of, of the elders of Zion came true? You know, and they would ask questions like that. And this was like, it, nobody even got that upset. They were like expecting the, 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 the person to make a response. And we've got a fundamental, so I think we've got a really fundamental problem in that, I mean, some of this stuff I took a long time of not following people who were academics who I'd followed when I was writing Conspiracy U, and I started following them again in the last two weeks. 
I mean, I was following him. I wasn't paying attention to him. I de whatever you do, you demote them or I don't remember what, but I got him back up. And, um, and uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, you couldn't say this about anybody else, any other group. No, you couldn't even think about it. Whether, and, and yet it's, and, and, and you've got a huge amen core. So we have a big job. We have a really big job. to celebrate Jewish American Heritage Month this and every May. I take every chance I get to celebrate everything that's great about Jewish heritage and culture. I take pride in how America's Jewish community in all its forms has both shaped and been shaped by our nation. Now is a great time to remind ourselves and share with our neighbors just how vibrant and wonderful the stories of American Jewish life are. No matter your religious beliefs, your political affiliation, your age, or your favorite podcast, JAHM is something we can all lift up together. Learn how at jewishamericanheritage.org. I do think, Melanie, we have a lot to learn from your work because I think that this, first of all, not to you know, the, the fact that there are so many people now wondering how to talk to their kids about horrific things at different ages. I think those are the resources people have been looking at. But just what, what happens when we probe into the unpleasant, into the, into the, the sort of the discomfort of, of the many realities of our lives? I think uh, our work has taken an urgency in the last couple of weeks from this idea that makes me so uncomfortable because so many funerals open with this and their eulogy and the, the rabbi speaking, uh, there are no words. You know what? There's plenty of words. I hate that. Yeah. Because after you hear someone say there are no words, then they go on for half an hour eulogizing the person. Also, for right? a Jew to say there are no words right? is like a hate crime. Bingo. So, there are always words. So, you know, we have so much Jewish wisdom offering us words to say in these hardest moments. So you think about what are the words that you say when you hear someone die? Whether you believe this or not, right? You say, blessed is the judge of truth, Baruch Dayan HaEmet, right? What do you not do when you show up at a Shiva home? You don't speak until spoken to so that you're leaving space for the mourner. We have a lot of wisdom to offer. When you leave a Shiva home, what do you say? The Ashkenazim say, may you be comforted among the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem, which is a signal to say you're not alone in this, right? You're not the only mourner out there, and I'm here with you. I'm acknowledging that you're a mourner by offering you these words of comfort. Now, none of those words may feel exactly right for this moment, but we have a whole menu. Those are just a few samples from what's available to us in Jewish wisdom to speak to life's hardest moments. And so when we don't normalize those rituals, those customs, when people don't know about them, they're left at a loss for words. They don't know how to talk about death and dying. They don't know what to say when Jews are massacred, when their neighbor dies of cancer, which is so normal, and they don't know what to say when they show up or don't show up, right? And so we need to normalize with our own kids. I have a kid on a college campus now, and I have a 13-year-old, God help me. So, you know, we need to normalize these conversations. My chapter in the book opens with the story of our now 13-year-old at five, 
um, coming home from kindergarten. You know when the kids learn their letters like big A, little A, what begins with A? And they write the letters and then they draw the picture. Apples, ants, right? And it was D-Day. And you would imagine you get lots of pictures of daisies and doggies and duckies. And my kid came home with a stick figure flat on its back. And we said, Ami, <laughs> what is this? And Ami said, dead. Dead begins with D. Now, why was this normal in our family at the time? Because Ami grew up with Bubby and Zadie having already been dead by the time Ami was able to talk about it. So we are talking about normalizing the reality that some of our family are no longer alive. We use Bubby's recipes. We use Zadie's challah knife on Shabbat, right? We've normalized the fact that people are dead and their stories are still part of our lives. And I think this is what we need to equip our kids with, right? Like Laura was saying, that when kids know the stories of their own families, the ups and the downs. It's the same thing in talking about death. When kids know that it's okay to talk about it, when they're not pushed out of the room ritually, when we don't make all of the people who haven't yet lost a parent, you know, leave during certain parts of the service, right, on Yom Kippur, when everybody shows up, well, more people than not show up, um, you know, I think that's one of the ways that we can begin to bring Jewish wisdom, history, story into uh, the reality that our young people are living today. We've heard a lot about what we're doing wrong. <laughs> what are some things that we're broadly doing right? Is there any hope that any of you are seeing, um, particularly right in this moment, um, of, of an organization, of a person, or of a story you heard that gave you hope for, for our people uh, in these, these you know, really unprecedented times? And whoever is watching the football, I respect it. Just please mute it. <laughs> I would say one of the things that I've seen that's been really right is the way the adult Jewish community has embraced Jewish students and been there for them. It's been an enormous part. It's not in my department of AJC, but the person whose role it is has been literally going from campus to campus and just being there as a presence, just a presence to help. You need t-shirts and Israeli flags, we'll pay for them. You need a Shabbat dinner, we're there. You wanna talk something through, great. You want help writing a petition, we can do that. You wanna set up a meeting with a dean, we'll help you facilitate it. And it's obviously not just AJC at all, it's Hillel, it's Chabad, it's ADL, it's so many wonderful Jewish organizations. It's the it's the Jewish day schools and the synagogues. I don't know how many of you um, uh, saw Angela Bookdahl, Rabbi Angela Bookdahl is one of my rebbies, um, sent out a video to the college students from her synagogue, Central Synagogue in Manhattan. I feel like we've showed up for the kids and we're continuing to show up for the kids and, um, and that's huge. They need us. Ruby, hopeful doesn't seem your vibe, but can you try? <laughs> Dig into uh, that agotic mind. Yeah, I I think that we I'm I I remain hopeful because I know that this is not it's a this is a terrible dark hour. It's not our darkest hour. We've had many of these on various scales, and we have we do have the gene that deals with this and enable us to survive it we have to tap into this gene, gene, into this resilience. I feel that we already are finding it. And people in, in a previous panel upstairs spoke about how, how a, a, I think, I forget who Dara or somebody said, like it was so a, 
surprising and wonderful to see how, yes, everybody did, did immediately spring to action, support Israel, support each other. So we do have that, those, we do have that core of resilience. We just need to tap into it and we need to, we need to go to it much stronger with the new generation to teach them that they too have it. But we do have it in us to survive. So um, my father was a Holocaust survivor. And, um, uh, and I, I, my daughter all know this, because anytime I came home or I came home and I had a tough, for some reason, something go right, or he'd say, you know, this is better than the, that's a lot better than my best day in Auschwitz. And, you know, and I was done complaining. Like, it didn't matter. My dad is I'm, familiar okay. with that, uh, you know? that emotional lens. Right, I'm, that's yeah. like it. So, look, we are, we were at a time in the, four, in the 30s and 40s when the Jews were abandoned, when, um, uh, you, you know, to a certain degree, there was plausible deniability of being able to do something because in my father's times of Schwechner, they tried to bury all the evidence. Now it's live streamed on social media. So actually, there's no excuse for not trying to do something and reacting to evil in the world, across, not just among the Jews, by the way, just uh, broadly. There's no excuse, frankly, for us not being concerned about the Rawinga and the, and the Uyghurs and the Kashmir and the Karens, in, the Karens, if I'm pronouncing that brand, the Kashans in Burma. There's no excuse for us anymore. And in a way, that's better um, because it says we've got to do something and we are geared up and thank God Jews can defend themselves today, which they, we, there was a time when there was no place that Jews could defend themselves. So it's not our worst time. I, I definitely agree with, with Ruby on this. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think that we can make this our finest hour if we stop. And here's the thing I think that's critical, is that Judaism and the Torah is not from the right, from the left. I mean, I can pull out and show you really socialistic stuff coming from the Torah, and I can show you really capitalistic stuff, and I can show you ways, you know, I mean, you can, you can make a large number of arguments from the Torah. We've got, I think, as Jews, and I pray to God that we do this, is transcend politics and get back to right and wrong and humanity and calling out lies and, and calling out idolatry. So this could be a moment where some good things arise, but it's certainly not gonna make up for the dead people, the people who are murdered, and the people who are being held hostage today. I don't wanna say that. I'm just thinking about the images that we have access to in the media and how horrifying they are and how much we're trying to protect our young ones from seeing them and how educative it is in this moment to see the respect with which uh, we're attempting to treat the dead, right? The reality that some people in Israel are being buried in caskets, which is not the tradition in Israel because their bodies are no longer intact, um, I think is an opportunity in the future for us to talk about um, 
and, and not necessarily in the moment, but it's just opened my eyes and seeing the images and the conversations, right? This period of extended ani nut in between death and burial, you're exempt from certain religious obligations. And here you have these people who are living in an extended period of being exempt from certain obligations in their life, but not knowing if and when they're going to be able to move on with their life. Um, and I think um, that's an important piece for us to be talking about. Ruby, Laura, Scott, Melanie, thank you for joining me. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you for your questions as well. This has been Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, a podcast produced by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, in conjunction with Unorthodox and Tablet Studios. If you like the show, you should check out the book Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. The panels were moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with my Unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. The podcast was edited by Quinn Waller. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.